Volume One, Introduction, Part Three of Rob Roy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Harris. Rob Roy by Sir Walter Scott, Volume One, Introduction, Part Three. I may here mention one or two occasions on which Rob Roy appears to have given way in the manner alluded to. My late venerable friend, John Ramsay of Octertire, alike eminent as a classic scholar, and as an authentic register of the ancient history and manners of Scotland, informed me that on occasion of a public meeting at a bonfire in the town of Doane, Rob Roy gave some offence to James Edmundstone of Newton, the same gentleman who was unfortunately concerned in the slaughter of Lord Rollo. See MacLaurin's Criminal Trials, number 9. When Edmund Stone compelled MacGregor to quit the town on pain of being thrown by him into the bonfire, "'I broke one off your ribs on a former occasion,' said he, "'and now, Rob, if you provoke me further, I'll break your neck.' But it must be remembered that Edmund Stone was a man of consequence in the Jacobite party, as he carried the royal standard of James the Seventh at the Battle of Sheriffmuir, and also that he was near the door of his own mansion-house, and probably surrounded by his friends and adherents. Rob Roy, however, suffered in reputation for retiring under such a threat. Another well-vouched case is that of Cunningham of Bokken. Henry Cunningham, Esquire, of Bokken, was a gentleman of Stirlingshire, who, like many exquisites of our own time, united a natural high spirit and daring character with an affectation of delicacy of address and manners amounting to foppery. A note his courage and affectation of foppery were united which is less frequently the case, with a spirit of innate modesty. He is thus described in Lord Binning's satirical verses entitled Argyle's Levy. The Duke then, turning round well pleased, said, Sure you've been in France. A more polite and jaunty man I never saw before. Then Harry bowed and blushed and bowed and strutted to the door. See a collection of original poems by Scotch Gentleman, Volume 2, page 125. He chanced to be in company with Rob Roy, who, either in contempt of Boken's supposed effeminacy, or because he thought him a safe person to fix a quarrel on, a point which Rob's enemies alleged he was wont to consider, insulted him so grossly that a challenge passed between them. The good wife of the clocken had hidden Cunningham's sword, and while he rummaged the house in quest of his own or some other, Rob Roy went to the Shealing Hill, the appointed place of combat, and paraded there with great majesty, waiting for his antagonist. In the meantime, Cunningham had managed to rummage out an old sword, and, entering the ground of contest in all haste, rushed on the outlaw with such unexpected fury that he fairly drove him off the field. Nor did he show himself in the village again for some time. Mr. MacGregor Stirling has a softened account of this anecdote in his new edition of Nimmo's Stirlingshire. Still, he records Rob Roy's discomfiture. Occasionally Rob Roy suffered disasters and incurred great personal danger. On one remarkable occasion he was saved by the coolness of his lieutenant, Macanalster of Fletcher, the little John of his band, a fine active fellow, of course, and celebrated as a marksman. It happened that MacGregor and his party had been surprised and dispersed by a superior force of horse and foot, and the word was given to split and squander. Each shifted for himself, but a bold dragoon attached himself to pursuit of Rob. 
and overtaking him struck at him with his broadsword. A plate of iron in his bonnet saved the MacGregor from being cut down to the teeth, but the blow was heavy enough to bear him to the ground, crying as he fell, Oh, Macalister, is there naething in her? i.e. in the gun. The trooper at the same time exclaiming, Damn ye, your mother never wrought your nightcap, had his arm raised for a second blow, when Macalister fired, and the ball pierced the dragoon's heart. Such as he was, Rob Roy's progress in his occupation is thus described by a gentleman of sense and talent, who resided within the circle of his predatory wars, and probably felt their effects, and speaks of them, as might be expected, with little of the forbearance with which, from their peculiar and romantic character, they are now regarded. This man, Rob Roy MacGregor, was a person of sagacity, and neither wanted stratagem nor address and having abandoned himself to all licentiousness, set himself at the head of all the loose, vagrant, and desperate people of that clan, in the west end of Perth and Stirlingshire, and infested those whole countries with thefts, robberies, and depredations. Very few who lived within his reach, that is, within the distance of a nocturnal expedition, could promise to themselves security, either for their persons or effects, without subjecting themselves to pay him a heavy and shameful tax of blackmail. He at last proceeded to such a degree of audaciousness that he committed robberies, raised contributions, and resented quarrels, at the head of a very considerable body of armed men, in open day, and in the face of the government. Now from Mr. Graham of Gartmore's Causes of the Disturbances in the Highlands, see Jameson's edition of Burt's Letters from the North of Scotland Appendix, Volume 2, page 348. The extent and success of these depredations cannot be surprising when we consider that the scene of them was laid in a country where the general law was neither enforced nor respected. Having recorded that the general habit of cattle-stealing had blinded even those of the better classes to the infamy of the practice, and that as men's property consisted entirely in herds, it was rendered in the highest degree precarious, Mr. Graham adds, on those accounts there is no culture of ground, no improvement of pastures, and from the same reasons no manufactures, no trade, in short no industry. The people are extremely prolific, and therefore so numerous that there is not business in that country, according to its present order and economy, for the one-half of them. Every place is full of idle people, accustomed to arms, and lazy in everything but rapines and depredations. As buddle or acavitae houses are to be found everywhere throughout the country, so in these they saunter away their time, and frequently consume there the returns of their illegal purchases. Here the laws have never been executed, nor the authority of the magistrate ever established. Here the officer of the law neither dare nor can execute his duty, and several places are about thirty miles from lawful persons. In short, there is no order, no authority, no government. The period of the rebellion, 1715, approached soon after Rob Roy had attained celebrity. His Jacobite partialities were now placed in opposition to his sense of the obligations which he owed to the indirect protection of the Duke of Argyle. But the desire of drowning his sounding steps amid the din of general war induced him to join the forces of the Earl of Mar although his patron, the Duke of Argyle, was at the head of the army opposed to the Highland insurgents. The MacGregors, a large sept of them at least, that of Sien Mor, on this occasion were not commanded by Rob Roy, but by his nephew, already mentioned, Gregor MacGregor, otherwise called James Graham of Glengyle, 
and still better remembered by a Gaelic epithet, Glendu, i.e. black knee, from a black spot on one of his knees, which his highland garb rendered visible. There can be no question, however, that being then very young, Glengyle must have acted on most occasions by the advice and direction of so experienced a leader as his uncle. The MacGregors assembled in numbers at that period, and began even to threaten the lowlands toward the lower extremity of Loch Lomond. They suddenly seized all the boats which were upon the lake, and, probably with a view to some enterprise of their own, drew them overland to Inversnaid, in order to intercept the progress of a large body of west-country Whigs, who were in arms for the government, and moving in that direction. The Whigs made a, an excursion for the recovery of the boats. Their forces consisted of volunteers from Paisley, Kilpatrick, and elsewhere, who, with the assistance of a body of seamen, were towed up the river Leven in longboats, belonging to the ships of war then lying in the Clyde. At Luss they were joined by the forces of Sir Humphrey Colloquin, and James Grant, his son-in-law, with their followers, attired in the highland dress of the period which is picturesquely described. At night they arrived at Luss, where they were joined by Sir Humphrey Colloquin of Luss, and James Grant of Placander, his son-in-law, followed by forty or fifty stately fellows in their short hose and belted plaids, armed each of them with a well-fixed gun on his shoulder, a strong, handsome target with a sharp-pointed steel of above half an L in length, screwed into the navel of it on his left arm, a sturdy claymore by his side, and a pistol or two with a dirk and knife in his belt. That description from Ray's History of the Rebellion, page 287. The whole party crossed to Craig Royston, but the MacGregors did not offer combat. If we are to believe the account of the expedition given by the historian Ray, they leaped on shore at Craig Royston with the utmost intrepidity, no enemy appearing to oppose them, and by the noise of their drums, which they beat incessantly, and the discharge of their artillery and small arms, terrified the MacGregors, whom they appear never to have seen, out of their fastnesses, and caused them to fly in a panic to the general camp of the Highlanders at Strathfillan. The low countrymen succeeded in getting possession of the boats at a great expenditure of noise and courage, and little risk of danger. After this temporary removal from his old haunts, Rob Roy was sent by the Earl of Mar to Aberdeen, to raise, it's believed, a part of the clan MacGregor, which is settled in that country. These men were of his own family, the race of Sir Mor. They were the descendants of about three hundred MacGregors, whom the Earl of Murray, about the year 1624, transported from his estates in Menteith to oppose against his enemies, the Mackintoshes, a race as hardy and restless as they were themselves. Ah, but while in the city of Aberdeen, Rob Roy met a relation of a very different class and character from those he was sent to summon to arms. This was Dr. James Gregory, by descent a MacGregor, the patriarch of a dynasty of professors distinguished for literature and scientific talent, and the grandfather of the late eminent physician and accomplished scholar, Professor Gregory of Edinburgh. This gentleman was at the time professor of medicine in King's College, Aberdeen, and son of Dr. James Gregory, distinguished in science as the inventor of the reflecting telescope. With such a family it may seem our friend Rob could have had little communion, but Civil war is a species of misery which introduces men to strange bedfellows. Dr. Gregory thought it a point of prudence to claim kindred at so critical a period, 
with a man so formidable and influential. He invited Rob Roy to his house, and treated him with so much kindness, that he produced in his generous bosom a degree of gratitude which seemed likely to occasion very inconvenient effects. The professor had a son about eight or nine years old, a lively, stout boy of his age, with whose appearance our highland Robin Hood was much taken. On the day before his departure from the house of his learned relative Rob Roy, who had pondered deeply how he might requite his cousin's kindness, took Dr. Gregory aside and addressed him to this purport. "'My dear kinsman, I have been thinking what I could do to show me sense of your hospitality. Now here you have a fine-spirited boy of a son whom you are ruining by cramming him with your useless book-learning. And I am determined, by way of manifesting my great goodwill to you and yours, to take him with me and make a man of him.' The learned professor was utterly overwhelmed when his warlike kinsman announced his kind purpose, in language which implied no doubt of its being a proposal which would he and ought to be, accepted with the utmost gratitude. The task of apology or explanation was of a most delicate description, and there might have been considerable danger in suffering Rob Roy to perceive that the promotion with which he threatened the son was, in the father's eyes, the ready road to the gallows. Indeed, every excuse which he could at first think of, such as regret for putting his friend to trouble with a youth who had been educated in the lowlands and so on, only strengthened the chieftain's inclination to patronize his young kinsman, as he supposed they arose entirely from the modesty of the father. He would for a long time take no apology, and even spoke of carrying off the youth by a certain degree of kindly violence, whether his father consented or not. At length the perplexed professor pleaded that his son was very young, and an infirm state of health, and not yet able to endure the hardships of a mountain life but that in another year or two he hoped his health would be firmly established, and he would be in a fitting condition to attend on his brave kinsman, and follow out the splendid destinies to which he opened the way. This agreement being made, the cousins parted, Rob Roy pledging his honour to carry his young relation to the hills with him on his next return to Aberdeenshire, and Dr. Gregory, doubtless, praying in his secret soul that he might never see Rob's highland face again. James Gregory, who thus escaped being his kinsman's recruit, and in all probability his henchman, was afterwards professor of medicine in the college, and, like most of his family, distinguished by his scientific acquirements. He was rather of an irritable and pertinacious disposition, and his friends were wont to remark, when he showed any symptom of these foibles, "'Ha! Huh, this comes from not having been educated—by Rob Roy!' The connection between Rob Roy and his classical kinsman did not end with the period of Rob's transient power. At a period considerably subsequent to the year 1715, he was walking in the castle street of Aberdeen, arm in arm with his host, Dr. James Gregory, when the drums in the barracks suddenly beat to arms, and soldiers were seen issuing from the barracks. "'If these lads are turning out,' said Rob, taking leave of his cousin with great composure, "'it's time for me to look after me safety.' So saying, he dived down a close, and, as John Bunyan says, went upon his way, and was seen no more. The first of these anecdotes, which brings the highest pitch of civilization so closely in contact with the half-savage state of society, I have heard told by the late distinguished Dr. Gregory, and the members of his family have had the kindness to collate the story with their recollections and family documents, and furnish the authentic particulars. The second rests on the recollection of an old man, 
who was present when Rob took French leave of his literary cousin, on hearing the drums beat, and communicated the circumstance to Mr. Alexander Forbes, a connection of Dr. Gregory by marriage, who is still alive. We have already stated that Rob Roy's conduct during the insurrection of 1715 was very equivocal. His person and followers were in the Highland army, but his heart seems to have been with the Duke of Argyles. Yet the insurgents were constrained to trust to him as their only guide when they marched from Perth toward Dunblane, with the view of crossing the Forth at what are called the Fords of Fru, and when they themselves said he could not be relied upon. This movement to the westward on the part of the insurgents brought on the Battle of Sheriffmuir, indecisive indeed in its immediate results, but of which the Duke of Argyle reaped the whole advantage. In this action it will be recollected that the right wing of the Highlanders broke and cut to pieces Argyle's left wing, while the clans on the left of Mar's army, though consisting of Stuarts, Mackenzies, and Camerons, were completely routed. During this medley of flight and pursuit Rob Roy retained his station on a hill in the centre of the Highland position and though it said his attack might have decided the day, he could not be prevailed upon to charge. This was the more unfortunate for the insurgents, as the leading of a party of the Macphersons had been committed to MacGregor. This, it is said, was owing to the age and infirmity of the chief of that name, who, unable to lead his clan in person, objected to his heir apparent, Macpherson of Nord, discharging his duty on that occasion, so that the tribe, or a part of them, were brigaded with their allies, the MacGregors. While the favourable moment for action was gliding away unemployed, Mar's positive orders reached Rob Roy that he should presently attack, to which he coolly replied, "'Nay, nay, if they cannot do it without me, they cannot do it with me.' One of the Macphersons, named Alexander, one of Rob's original profession, Videlicet, a drover, but a man of great strength and spirit, was so incensed at the inactivity of this temporary leader that he threw off his plaid, drew his sword, and called out to his clansmen, "'Let us endure this no longer. Feel not, Legia, I will.' Rob Roy replied with great coolness, "'Were the question about driving Highland Stots or Kylo's, Sandy, I'd yield to your superior skill, but as it respects the leading of men, I must be allowed to be the better judge.' "'Did the matter respect driving Glen Eagle's Stouts?' answered the Macpherson. The question with Rob would not be which was to be last, but which was to be foremost. Incensed at this sarcasm, MacGregor drew his sword, and they would have fought upon the spot if their friends on both sides had not interfered. But the moment of attack was completely lost. Rob did not, however, neglect his own private interest on the occasion. In the confusion of an undecided field of battle he enriched his followers by plundering the baggage and the dead on both sides. The fine old satirical ballad on the Battle of Sheriff Muir does not forget to stigmatize our hero's conduct on this memorable occasion. Rob Roy he stood watch on a hill for to catch the booty for aught that I saw, man, for he ne'er advanced from the place where he stanced till Namir was to do there at Arman. Notwithstanding the sort of neutrality which Rob Roy had continued to observe during the progress of the rebellion, he did not escape some of its penalties. He was included in the act of attainder, and the house in Brettelbane, which was his place of retreat, was burned by General Lord Cadogan, when, after the conclusion of the insurrection, he marched through the highlands to disarm and punish the offending clans. But upon going to Inverary with about forty or fifty of his followers, Rob obtained favour by an apparent surrender of their arms to Colonel Patrick Campbell of Finna, who furnished them and their leader with protections under his hand. 
Being thus in a great measure secured from the resentment of government, Rob Roy established his residence at Craig Royston, near Loch Lomond, in the midst of his own kinsmen, and lost no time in resuming his private quarrel with the Duke of Montrose. For this purpose he soon got on foot as many men, and well armed, too, as he had yet commanded. He never stirred without a bodyguard of ten or twelve picked followers, and without much effort could increase them to fifty or sixty. The Duke was not wanting in efforts to destroy this troublesome adversary. His grace applied to General Carpenter, commanding the forces in Scotland, and by his orders three parties of soldiers were directed from the three different points of Glasgow, Stirling, and Finlarig, near Killin. Mr. Graham of Killan, the Duke of Montrose's relation and factor, Sheriff Depute also of Dumbartonshire, accompanied the troops, that they might act upon the civil authority and have the assistance of a trusty guide well acquainted with the hills. It was the object of these several columns to arrive about the same time in the neighborhood of Rob Roy's residence, and surprise him and his followers. But heavy rains, the difficulties of the country, and the good intelligence which the outlaw was always supplied with, disappointed their well-concerted combination. The troops, finding the birds were flown, avenged themselves by destroying the nest. They burned Rob Roy's house, though not with impunity, for the MacGregors, concealed among the thickets and cliffs, fired on them and killed a grenadier. Rob Roy avenged himself for the loss which he sustained on this occasion by an act of singular audacity. About the middle of November, 1716, John Graham of Killearn, already mentioned as factor of the Montrose family, went to a place called Chapel Eric, where the tenants of the Duke were summoned to appear with their termly rents. They appeared, accordingly, and the factor had received ready money to the amount of about three hundred pounds, when Rob Roy entered the room at the head of an armed party. The steward endeavoured to protect the Duke's property by throwing the books of accounts and money into a garret, thrusting they might escape notice. But the experienced freebooter was not to be baffled where such a prize was at stake. He recovered the books and the cash, placed himself calmly in the receipt of custom, examined the accounts, pocketed the money, and gave receipts on the Duke's part, saying he would hold reckoning with the Duke of Montrose out of the damages which he had sustained by his grace's means, in which he included the losses he had suffered as well by the burning of his house by General Cadogan, as by the later expedition against Craig Royston. He then requested Mr. Graham to attend him, nor does it appear that he treated him with any personal violence or even rudeness, although he informed him he regarded him as a hostage, and menaced rough usage in case he should be pursued, or in danger of being overtaken. Few more audacious feats have been performed. After some rapid changes of place, the fatigue attending which was the only annoyance that Mr. Graham seems to have complained of, he carried his prisoner to an island on Loch Catron, and caused him to write to the Duke, to state that his ransom was fixed at thirty-four hundred merks, pounds, being the balance which MacGregor pretended remained due to him, after deducting all that he owed to the Duke of Montrose. However, after detaining Mr. Graham five or six days in custody on the island, which is still called Rob Roy's prison, and could be no comfortable dwelling for November nights, the outlaw seems to have despaired of attaining further advantage from his bold attempt, and suffered his prisoner to depart uninjured with the account-books and bills granted by the tenants, taking special care to retain the cash. The reader will find two original letters of the Duke of Montrose with that which Mr. Graham of Killearn dispatched from his prison-house by the outlaw's command 
in the appendix. Number two. About 1717 our chieftain had the dangerous adventure of falling into the hands of the Duke of Atoll, almost as much his enemy as the Duke of Montrose himself, but his cunning and dexterity again freed him from certain death. See a contemporary account of this curious affair in the appendix number five. Other pranks are told of Rob, which argue the same boldness and sagacity as the seizure of Killearn. The Duke of Montrose, weary of his insolence, procured a quantity of arms, and distributed them among his tenantry, in order that they might defend themselves against future violences. But they fell into different hands from those they were intended for. The MacGregors made separate attacks on the houses of the tenants, and disarmed them all, one after another, not, as was supposed, without the consent of many of the persons so disarmed. As a great part of the Duke's rents were payable in kind, there were girnels, granaries, established for storing up the corn at Moulin, and elsewhere on the Buchanan estate. To these storehouses Rob Roy used to repair with a sufficient force, and of course when he was least expected, and insist upon the delivery of quantities of grain, sometimes for his own use, and sometimes for the assistance of the country people, always giving regular receipts in his own name, and pretending to reckon with the Duke for what sums he received. In the meantime a garrison was established by government, the ruins of which may still be seen about half-way betwixt Loch Lomond and Loch Catron, upon Rob Roy's original property of Inversnaid. Even this military establishment could not bridle the restless MacGregor. He contrived to surprise the little fort, disarm the soldiers, and destroy the fortification. It was afterwards re-established, and again taken by the MacGregors under Rob Roy's nephew, Clindu, previous to the insurrection of 1745-6. Finally, the fort of Inversnaid was a third time repaired, after the extinction of civil discord, and when we find the celebrated General Wolfe commanding in it, the imagination is strongly affected by the variety of time and events which the circumstance brings simultaneously to recollection. It is now totally dismantled. Now, about 1792, when the author chanced to pass that way, while on a tour through the highlands, a garrison, consisting of a single veteran, was still maintaining at Inversnaid. The venerable warder was reaping his barley-croft in all peace and tranquillity, and when we asked admittance to repose ourselves, he told us we would find the key to the fort under the door. It was not, strictly speaking, as a professed depredator that Rob Roy now conducted his operations, but as a sort of contractor for the police in Scottish phrase, a lifter of black nail. The nature of this contract has been described in the novel of Waverley, and in the notes on that work. Mr. Graham of Gartmore's description of the character may be here transcribed. The confusion and disorders of the country were so great, and the government so absolutely neglected it, that the sober people were obliged to purchase some security to their effects by shameful and ignominious contracts of blackmail. A person who had the greatest correspondence with the thieves was agreed with to preserve the lands contracted for from thefts, for certain sums to be paid yearly. Upon this fund he employed one half of the thieves to recover stolen cattle, and the other half of them to steal in order to make this agreement and blackmail contract necessary. The estates of those gentlemen who refused to contract or give countenance to that pertinacious practice, are plundered by the thieving part of the watch, in order to force them to purchase their protection. 
Their leader calls himself the Captain of the Watch, and his banditti go by that name, and as this gives them a kind of authority to traverse the country, so it makes them capable of doing any mischief. These corps through the highlands make altogether a very considerable body of men, inured from their infancy to the greatest fatigues, and very capable to act in a military way when occasion offers. People who are ignorant and enthusiastic, who are in absolute dependence upon their chief or landlord, who are directed in their consciousness by Roman Catholic priests or non-juring clergymen, and who are not masters of any property, may easily be formed into any mould. They fear no dangers, as they have nothing to lose, and so can with ease be induced to attempt anything. Nothing can make their condition worse. Confusions and troubles do commonly indulge in such licentiousness, that by these they better it. That from Letters from the North of Scotland, Volume 2, pages 344-345. End of Volume 1, Section 3, Introduction, Recording by Mike Harris.